Hello again, and welcome to another Bible study. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount by describing eight new attitudes which he wanted his disciples to have. He wanted them to have these beautiful attitudes, as Billy Graham calls them. That was what his followers were to be like. He then went on to say he wanted them to make a difference in the world by being salt and light. Wherever they were, they were to be influential for good. And then he went on to raise the bar when it comes to obedience to the law of Moses, because the Pharisees had lowered the bar. They had made the meaning of God's law shallow. Jesus made it deep. For example, he quoted, do not murder. He said, if that includes angry thoughts and angry words, you have breached the spirit of that commandment. Do not commit adultery. He said that lustful thoughts and divorce, except in very exceptional circumstances, were also breaching that commandment. Jesus looked below the letter of the law to its spirit. He looked beyond what the law says in print to what its underlying principle is. And that's what he calls upon us to do. In John chapter 7, in the New Living Translation, it says, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's encouraging us to look beneath the surface of the law and to judge it correctly. And six times he quotes Old Testament scriptures. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In other words, the Lord gave you the old law. The Pharisees have limited its application and made it more shallow. I am going to develop that law and give it a deeper meaning. I'm going to fulfill it, fill it full of new meaning. So he's talked already about attitudes to murder and to adultery and to divorce. Our attitudes should be different from the attitudes of people who do not follow Jesus. Now he presents to us a new attitude towards truthfulness. Now truthfulness is in short supply in our world. If I mention to you the names of Trump, Putin, Johnson, you will know that every word has to be analysed before it can be accepted. If I mention the news of the world or the sun or the Daily Mail, you know that we can't take the words of these newspapers at face value. Truthfulness is in short supply in our culture today. And Jesus tells us to be truthful, not devious. Reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In Leviticus chapter 19, the Jews were told, do not swear falsely by my name. In Numbers chapter 30, when a person makes a vow to the Lord, he must not break his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, if you make a vow to the Lord, do not be slow to pay it. And most of us have. For example, in baptism, 
years ago in Baptist churches, it was almost the law, not quite, but it was certainly regular routine that at a baptismal service you sang, Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. There in the house of prayer, in the house of worship, before the gathered church, you promised to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. In marriage, you promised to keep your oaths till death parted you. Now the Pharisees embroidered this law. They said, you only have to keep your promise if you invoke the divine name. If you swear by God, you are obliged to keep your word. But if you come short of swearing by God, then if you break your word, it doesn't matter quite so much. Jesus said, if you swear by heaven, you are invoking God because heaven is where God rules. If you swear by the earth, you are invoking God because it is God's footstool. And if you swear by Jerusalem, you are invoking God because it is God's city. He's saying to us, you should not need to invoke a higher power to force you to tell the truth. You should simply tell the truth because you are a truthful person. Be transparently honest. Be thoroughly truthful by instinct. In James's letter, chapter 5, he writes, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Surely, James was there at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus delivered it. James is quoting Jesus almost word for word in his letter. So be honest. So honest that you don't need to resort to an oath to make you keep a promise to tell the truth. Now, does this mean then that a Christian should never swear on the Bible in court? Well, if you were to refuse and to affirm the truth, you haven't done wrong. But is that what Jesus meant? I suggest it isn't. Jesus is saying you shouldn't need to swear on the Bible in court in order to provoke you into telling the truth. After all, at his own trial, the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now Jesus didn't refuse. He didn't say, I'm not answering that question because you put me under oath to God. Not at all. He, he said, yes, it is as you say. And probably for most of you, on one occasion, a minister said to you, I require and charge you both, as in the sight of God, that if either of you know of any impediment why you may not lawfully marry, you do not confess it. Now, as a Christian, at your wedding, you probably didn't say, sorry, minister, I can't answer that because you put me under oath in the sight of God. You probably wouldn't refuse to ruin your own wedding in that way. Jesus has filled oath-taking with new meaning. You should be so instinctively honest, you don't need an oath. Jesus has shown to us a new attitude to truthfulness. Now we come to the section of the Sermon on the Mount, which those who don't believe in Jesus do regard as totally ridiculous. It's when Jesus taught us a new attitude to retaliation. Chapter 5 Verse 38. 
You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is telling us here to be generous in our attitudes and not grudging. The Pharisees were quoting from Exodus chapter 21. If men are fighting and there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, bruise for bruise. And Leviticus chapter 24 adds for good measure, fracture for fracture. But the context of that command is within the purview of a court. This is what a judge should do when hearing evidence in court. In the first instance, Moses. If Moses was hearing a case of a dispute between two men who had been fighting and then there had been some damage, then the penalty would be equal to the crime. The purpose of this law was to limit barbarity. It was to restrain punishments from being revengeful and really nasty. It was to, to make the punishment fit the crime. Moses means, if a man breaks your arm, don't get your family to go round and murder him. Or if a woman steals your donkey, don't get your family to go round, burn her barn down and all her animals inside it as well. Don't get your own back. Don't get revenge. Don't get mad. Get even. That's what the world says, isn't it? Don't get mad. Get even. And the law through Moses is saying, calm down. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Let the punishment fit the crime. But Jesus goes further. He says, do not resist an evil person. That's the New International Version translation. That's a hard one to interpret, isn't it? Tom Wright translates it, don't use violence to resist evil. The message says, here's what I propose, don't hit back at all. The Good News Bible, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. And the contemporary English version, don't try to get even with the person who has done something to you. I think those various translations help us to come to an understanding of this. You may remember the name of Archbishop Cranmer, who was largely responsible for many of the prayers in the Church of England prayer book and was burnt at the stake by King Henry VIII. It was said of the Archbishop, if you do my Lord of Canterbury an ill turn, he will be a friend all the days of your life. Cranmer had learnt what it meant to turn the other cheek. Let me tell you another story. Hudson Taylor was a 19th century missionary to China. He wanted to win Chinese people for Christ. He dressed like a Chinese. He had his hair as a Chinese. He ate their food. In all ways he possibly could, he lived as a Chinese person. And on one occasion, he went down to the riverbank and hailed a taxi boat to get him across the river. And a price was agreed. He hadn't quite got in the boat when a wealthy, posh Chinese man pushed him aside, literally pushed him, thumped him, and Hudson Taylor fell to the ground, dazed for a moment. The boatman insisted on taking Hudson Taylor first. But Hudson Taylor insisted on inviting that man who had assaulted him into the boat. He forgave him 
and he shared the gospel with him. Don't use violence to resist evil. Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. Do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. And then Jesus gives four little cameos. The first is turn the other cheek. In the Middle East to this day, I understand that to be slapped on the right cheek by the back of someone's hand is a grave insult. And Jesus is saying, if that happens to you, don't retaliate. The second cameo, being sued for your tunic. You're in court. You're being sued for something. Well, hand over your coat as well. In other words, the attitude, what's mine is mine, has become, I've caused you some loss. I will recompense you for your loss and with more. He talks about a soldier. A Roman soldier had the right to require a Jew, a member of the conquered race, to carry his baggage for him for two, for two miles. Sorry, for one mile. Jesus said, go too. He said, do more than the minimum, even to someone who is overbearing and too demanding. Go further than they have required. And the fourth cameo, give to someone who asks for or wants to borrow money. Let generosity be the hallmark of a disciple. After all, isn't that how God has behaved towards us? Martin Lloyd-Jones expresses it this way. We must cease to be sensitive about self. We must cease to be sensitive about self. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus is requiring us to examine our tendency to insist upon our own rights. He's telling us to be less sensitive about ourselves. If someone hits you or sues you or forces you to do something for them and wants money from you, don't think of your rights. Don't say, they've got no right to demand that of me. Think of their needs. Jesus is setting a very high Bar indeed. Remember Archbishop Cranmer, if you do my Lord of Canterbury an ill turn, he will be your friend all the days of your life. A new attitude to truthfulness, a new attitude to retaliation, and then Jesus teaches a new attitude to love. Chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be loving, not hateful. This is the sixth example of the Pharisees taking a law of God from Moses and adapting it to make it easier. They quoted, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. You will not find that in your Old Testament. You will find in Leviticus chapter 19, 
Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am Yahweh. Jesus tells us here in Matthew chapter 5, pray for those who persecute you. In Luke's account of this sermon, Luke chapter 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. You see, Jesus has raised the bar yet again. God shows his indiscriminate goodness to evil and good pe- to evil people and good people alike, so should we. He talked about God sending the sun and the rain on everyone, regardless of their faith or their unbelief. In theology, we call this common grace. God blesses all people with some blessings. Uh, there was a, an English judge called Lord Bowen, and he wrote a bit of doggerel on this saying of Jesus. He said, The rain it raineth on the just, and also on the unjust fella, but chiefly on the just, because the unjust steals the just's umbrella. Well, Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, not like your enemy. Love in the New Testament is an action rather than an emotion. New Testament love is what you do rather than what you feel. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that Lutheran pastor in Germany who preached against Hitler and Nazism. And he was arrested and tortured and put in prison, ultimately hanged by the Nazis only a few weeks before the end of the war. I quote, This, love your enemy, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. If you do, my Lord of Canterbury, an ill turn, he will be your friend all the days of your life. Proverbs says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, and if they are thirsty, give them water to drink. And Paul develops that in Romans chapter 12. Jesus says, even tax collectors are nice to tax collectors. I expect members of the kingdom of God to be nice to everyone. If you only show love to nice people who like you, you're no different from anyone else. Our enemy seeks our harm. We must seek his or her good. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is normal, decent humanity. But to return good for evil is divine. And Jesus has raised the bar that we should. This is what Jesus himself did, and this is what Jesus is teaching us we should do. And then he closes what we call chapter 5 by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, Jesus is accepting no compromise whatsoever. He's saying, I'm teaching you how to live, now go away and do it. Certainly in the power of the Holy Spirit, certainly with his own uh, teaching and, and spirit and attitudes and himself in you, because he is with us always. But Jesus doesn't compromise in his standards. So in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, he has set the bar higher again. Be truthful, not devious. Be generous, not grudging. Be loving, not hateful. Well, beatitude people who are meek and who are merciful and who hunger and thirst for righteousness and who are peacemakers, 
will be truthful rather than devious. They will be generous rather than grudging. They will be, be loving, not hateful. Have you got there yet? No. Have I got there yet? No. What about you? What about me? Jesus says to you and to me, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God give us the grace to want to live up to the standards of Jesus and the power to do so for his name's sake. Amen. Amen.